Let, let me pray for us once more as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we come before you. And we are here today to exalt you, to praise you, to glorify you. And also because we want to hear from you. And uh, just as we, we sang in that last song, we do invite you to speak by your spirit. To come and uh, to change what we would see and what we would seek. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us soft hearts. We know that you alone have the words of life. And so uh, we pray that you would still our hearts, that you would quiet our minds so that we would be receptive people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was around 7 p.m. on July 23rd, 2018, when the head coach of the Wild Boars, a youth soccer team, checked his phone for the first time that day and noticed that he had 20 missed calls, all from parents who were worried that their kids had not returned from morning practice. So the head coach immediately dialed the assistant coach. No answer. Then in quick succession, he tried several members of the team and again was met with the same result. Finally, he reached a 13-year-old member of the team who mentioned that he had been picked up right after practice, but that the rest of the boys, ages 11 to 16, had gone exploring in a nearby cave. In spite of the, the heavy rain that had recently begun, the the coach got in his car and he raced up to the mouth of the cave, finding the abandoned bicycles of the boy near the entrance. And by now, many of you are beginning to recall details of the incident I'm referring to. Shortly after morning practice had ended that morning, uh, the 12 members of that youth soccer team and uh, their assistant coach had indeed set off to explore a nearby cave in northern Thailand. However, not long after the boys had entered that cave, you know what happened. The monsoon rains began earlier than anticipated that year, partially flooding the cave system, blocking their way out, tracking them deep within. The Thai Navy SEALs were the first on the scene, followed by divers from the British Cave Rescue Council. The United States military dispatched pararescue personnel and survival experts. The Aussies and the Chinese sent teams of specialized divers. Meanwhile, policemen with sniffer dogs went and ser searched the surface above for, for shaft openings. And then amazingly, on July 2nd, nearly nine days later, these boys and their coach were found alive on a narrow rock shelf 2.5 miles from the cave mouth. Uh, but the rescue operation was far from over. If you haven't seen the movie 13 Lives, I don't want to give away the ending, uh, but I will tell you that it does end well for these boys and their coach. All in all, military specialists and corporate executives arrived, or corporate experts, I should say, arrived from 25 different countries to offer assistance. Over 10,000 people in some form or fashion contributed to the rescue with representatives from about 100 different government agencies. Locals dropped everything to help, cooking meals to feed the personnel working inside the cave. Volunteers laid piping to reroute water away from the cave. Nearby farmers allowed their fields to be flooded, ruining their crops. Even if you recall, Elon Musk got in on the, uh, the, the effort. 
engineers from SpaceX built a tiny kid-sized submarine. And on July 9th, Elon arrived on the scene and was willing to assist if needed. Now let me ask you this. Why all the effort? I mean, why bother? Do you think if it was 13 guinea pigs that had been trapped inside the cave, we would have seen the same response? While, while sad, I think we can agree that um, 13 guinea pigs wouldn't have merited you know, acres and acres of rice fields being destroyed, and I don't think we would have seen experts in cave diving board planes. I don't think Elon would have built a mini-sub. Uh, not even for, I would say, you know, a pack of dogs or a litter of kittens. It was what was inside that cave that made all the difference. And when human life is in danger, we generally see compassion and concern on display. And that's true whether it's teens that are trapped in a cave or it's 33 miners that are stuck in a copper mine in Chile or it's astronauts aboard the Apollo 13 with no oxygen takes, or it's little baby Jessica at the bottom of a well. It's what's inside that makes all the difference. It's what's inside that determines the response. And, and this morning, I'd like to think with you for a bit about what's inside a mother's womb. And, and I want to just consider with you whether that same concern should be applied to the, to the pre-born life. And specifically, I want us to ask the question whether abortion, is, is that an issue where Christians can agree to disagree? And, and as we just wade into that, I, I want to speak to the elephant in the room first. I know this is a divisive issue for our country. And I'm sure that there are some of you that are thinking right now, why are we talking about this in church? You know, politics has no place in the church. And in some sense, I agree with you, the church should not be partisan. Uh, but at one point in time, slavery was also a hotly contested political issue in our country, and um, the same could be said for the civil rights movement. And, and I would just uh, go with me here on this thought experiment. If you were to hop in a time machine, and you were to go back to, say, 1850s, and you went into a church, and the pastor was teaching on Jesus' command that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And he made the argument, he made the application that Christians should support the end of slavery as a result of that. Would you think to yourself, man, I, I, you know, I can't believe this guy. He's, he's dragging politics into the pulpit. I'm, I'm guessing you wouldn't think that. You'd probably say good for this church, and I would completely agree with you. Scripture is very clear on that issue. And, and so if you're of the opinion that we shouldn't be talking about this topic in church, I'd say can we at least agree that there are sometimes that there are issues that can be political in nature that the church should address. And, and, and just give me a little rope, um, go with me for a moment and grant me a hearing. Uh, the other individual I'd want to address is the person who would say, well, you know, abortion for me isn't a political issue. It's not a, a, a theological issue. It's a personal issue. And maybe you've, um, you've encouraged someone to have an abortion. And maybe you've driven someone to get an abortion. Or maybe you've had an abortion. Please know that I'm not wanting to heap any guilt on you. 
And I know that many of you made that decision because you felt like there was no other choice. And you probably felt pressured to do it. And the last thing I would want to do is, is pour salt onto a wound and dredge up a painful time in your life. And I want you to know this, that we have a God who specializes in restoration. That's his specialty. And uh, I want to circle back around at the end and just kind of speak to you directly for a moment. Uh, now, by way of an overview, here's where we're headed. First, I want to share the argument for the historic Christian position on abortion. And then we'll look at what science, the Bible, and logic have to say about when human life begins. And then finally, we'll examine some of the arguments that are used to, to, to argue for, to justify the pro-choice position. So the foundation for the historic Christian position on abortion uh, is, is really rooted in two premises, and the first is this, intentionally killing an innocent human being is a moral wrong. The second one, then, is this, elective abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And as a result of these two premises, we get to this conclusion. Therefore, elective abortion is a moral wrong because it's the intentional killing of an innocent human being, and I would say except under rare, those, those, those rare circumstances where a mother's life is, is physically in danger. Now, I don't think there's any objections to the first premise, right? I, I think we're all in agreement that intentionally killing an innocent human being is wrong. I think we're all grateful to live in a country uh, where, where there are laws against just going out and indiscriminately killing people. And those laws accord with God's moral law. Uh, we see that in Scripture. Uh, we see that in the Noahic Covenant. We see that in the Ten Commandments. It's the Sixth Commandment. We see that throughout the Mosaic Law. God attaches a, a very uh, special sacredness to human life that's distinct from the rest of creation. And because we're created in His image, uh, there, there's certain rights that are afforded to human beings. So I think we all agree with premise number one. It's premise number two... Uh, that, that, that stirs a little the debate. And, and this is where we'll focus our time because this really is the crux of the issue. Uh, just like in the summer of 2018, it was what was inside the cave that made all the difference. It's what's inside the womb that makes the difference. So the, the debate over abortion, it really all boils down to whether an unborn child, or we could say a preborn child, I'll, I'll use both terms synonymously, whether the unborn is a human being. That's really the question we have to ask. And so we'll start with what does science have to say? Although many politicians might deflect when asked about the beginning of life, they might try and express some uncertainty and uh, sort of squirm out of that with something clever like, oh, well, that's above my pay grade. Um, I would say that's not true uh, because science has already answered the question. The late Dr. Jaime Gordon, he was the founder and director of the Mayo Clinic's world-renowned medical genetics program. He submitted the following expert testimony before Congress. He said, I think we can now also say that the question of the beginning of life, when life begins, is no longer a question for theological or philosophical dispute. It's an established scientific fact. Theologians and philosophers may go on to debate the meaning of life or the purpose of life, 
but it is an established fact that all life, including human life, begins at the moment of conception. Uh, Dr. Jerome Lejeune, professor of genetics at the University of Descartes in Paris, uh, he was the discoverer of the chromosome pattern of Down syndrome. Dr. Lejeune testified that after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. Dr. Bernard Nathanson, uh, the co-founder of NARAL, was one of the most pro-abortion figures in American history. He was personally involved in thousands of abortions. Uh, but his study of fetology and his use of ultrasound to observe the unborn child in the womb led him to conclude that he had made a horrible mistake. Later in life, he would convert to Christianity, but while he was still an atheist, this is what he said. Modern technologies have convinced us that beyond question, the unborn child is simply another human being, another member of the human community, indistinguishable in every way from any of us. Author Tim Chalice uh, summarizes what science tells us uh, about the life inside the womb. Uh, number one, we could say this. From the moment of fertilization, the preborn child is complete. So all the information that needs to be present is there. The fertilized egg just simply needs time to grow. Number two, the DNA evidence proves that the yet-to-be-born child is unique and gen genetically distinct from his or her mother. So the preborn child is not a part of a mother like an appendix. We don't say that a woman who is pregnant has four arms or four legs or two heads, and that's because the preborn is a unique entity inside his or her mother. Number three, the laws of biology would tell us that the preborn child is living because it's growing, developing, and undergoing metabolism. And this is why I don't believe it's honest to say that early on in pregnancy, what you might have is just a, a clump of cells or a mass of tissue. You can't imply that you have a collection of unimportant disorganized cells that have no control or no autonomy because the latest science shows us that a fertilized egg, this one little cell, with its complete genetic content, can and does begin to divide and to grow even in an experimental dish in an incubator. Uh, Dr. Maureen Kondak, a professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah states, the embryos are capable of growing, maturing, maintaining a physiologic balance between various organ systems, adapting to changing circumstances and repairing injury. Mere groups of human cells do nothing like this under any circumstances. So what we can say is, this is true for all of us, that we were once an embryo. By an internally directed process, uh, we not only say that, well, I, you know, I developed from an infant to a toddler, to a child, to an adolescent, to an adult. We could say it, it starts much earlier than that, that really what we did was we developed from embryos to fetuses, then to infants, toddlers, and so on. And scripture also recognizes the preborn as human beings from the moment of conception. In the passage that Drew read for us earlier, uh, King David states that God's knowledge of him, it didn't begin when David was um, suddenly conscious of his own existence or, or even when he was an infant. It began when he was in utero. Psalm 139 verse 15 tells us this. David says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. 
similarly, in Jeremiah 1, 5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated or I set you apart. In Luke 1, uh, verse 15, an angel arrives on the scene and, and, and says this about John the Baptist. For he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So scripture tells us that John the Baptist was not only alive inside his mother's womb, but God was also dwelling with him. Uh, the Didache is probably the earliest Christian document outside of the Bible. It's, it just means the teaching. And it dates to the late first century. And, and it says this in chapter 2. Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. And so scripture and the earliest Christian literature teach that personhood is something that begins in the womb. And, and as a result of that, the, the, the preborn are fully entitled to the protections that every other human deserves. Uh, that's, that's what we kind of see in scripture. And so I'd say, well, you know, does logic cohere with science in the Bible? Scott Klusendorf of the Life Training Institute points out four distinctions that one could make to, to distinguish between prenatal and postnatal life. And so if you're taking notes this morning, uh, this might be helpful to jot down. Uh, the, the acronym to remember this is SLED. So let's, let's consider these four differences that could be made and see if any are morally relevant factors that could justify the, the argument that the preborn are not as deserving as, as the same rights. The first difference is size. So it's true that embryos are smaller than newborns, and they're smaller than, than toddlers for that matter, but is this relevant? Does size determine value? If I were born with dwarfism, would that mean that, that those that are of a normal height would have more value than I do? I, I would hope not. And so I would submit to you that maybe size isn't an adequate criterion for depriving someone of the most basic human right. Uh, the second difference is level of development. So I was less developed as an embryo uh, than I was as an infant or a toddler, but it's also true that I was less developed as a toddler than I am now. So what level of development makes one a human? If you begin a, a decline in your later years, does that make you less human? A 10-year-old girl is probably more developed than a 2-year-old girl and maybe even more than some middle school boys. I say that affectionately. I've worked with the middle school boys with Jay Dietrich for the past three years. But, you know, does that mean that the 10-year-old has more rights? Well, maybe someone would say, okay, it's the point of consciousness. When you're aware, you're alive. But does a temporary lack of consciousness deprive one of their humanity? If you were involved in some accident and you slipped into a coma, and the doctor said that she was fairly certain that you'd regain consciousness in nine months, would you concede that others had the option to terminate your life just because you were in an unconscious state? I'm guessing not. So, so maybe 
development isn't the best argument. Uh, a third difference that we could point to is environment. I think all of us would agree that infanticide is wrong. So does that mean it's an eight-inch journey through the birth canal that changes the essential value of the preborn? If it would be wrong to kill a baby five minutes after they're born, does it make sense that it would be okay to kill that same baby five minutes before they were born? It is hard to argue that some magical transformation takes place in the birth canal that changes one from a non-person to a human being. Uh, the final difference that can be pointed to is the degree of dependency. So unborn babies are dependent on their mothers for survival. But those of us who have been parents, uh, we know that infants are incredibly dependent too, don't we? And still, um, I, I think this appears to be a popular argument because research shows that the majority of Americans agree that how long a woman has been pregnant should matter whether it's legal or illegal to have an abortion. And so the question is, well, where, where do you draw the line? If you say, okay, it's viability that matters. It's, it's the moment that the baby can survive outside the womb. That should mark the beginning of human life. Well, I would say things are going to get pretty fuzzy real quick. You'll, you'll have a constantly changing standard. Thanks to advances in science, the age of viability has continued to drop. It's now around 23 to 24 weeks. I would say, what about the pre-born and less developed parts of the world? Does that mean in places like where we live, right next to Winston-Salem, with all the hospitals and the great health care, that, that the pre-born should be regarded as human beings at 24 weeks? Uh, but maybe the pre-born in the deserts of Mongolia or in the jungles of the Amazon, that they really shouldn't be considered human beings until 34, 35 weeks. And I would say, do you really want human rights associated in any way with dependency? I mean, what would that mean if later in life you were paralyzed or you were confined to a wheelchair or you were in need of dialysis? Would that somehow make you less human? And I would say, I hope not. What Christians have maintained is that our, our value as humans is based on our intrinsic worth and not an instrumental worth. So let me explain that. If you're a human, and what we're told in scripture is that you're created in God's image, and that is what gives you special worth. It's intrinsic. It's not dependent on anything you do. You're, you're, you don't have to earn it. You're, you're, you're given that because God says that your life is sacred because you're made in his image. The instrumental position would say, well, um, you have value because of this task you perform or because of this contribution you make. And, and as you might imagine, it's, it's the culture that embraces the intrinsic worth of human beings that's able to make the strongest arguments in defense of human rights. Well, let's, let's consider some of the more common arguments to justify the pro-choice position and I'll just say, I know that there's way more than the ones I'm going to give. I've, I've read the comment section um, on the bottom of um, some videos on the internet and some articles. Uh, I originally had eight. And uh, I quickly became apparent that um, if we didn't want to bump into the second service, that um, this, this will not be the exhaustive uh, message on, on that particular topic. But I wanted to just pick four that, that I think um, are, are, are ones that we hear fairly often. 
and, um, and just share those with you as things to consider. Number one, pro-lifers don't care about women and they don't care about babies once they're born. You've probably heard this before. And, and the basic implication here is that pro-lifers are hypocritical. And I would agree that we can all do more to care for people from the womb to the tomb. That's important to God. I would say, though, it's also misleading to say that Christians don't care about all of life. As Pastor David pointed out in a, in a sermon last year, yes, we support Salem Pregnancy Care Center, but the other 11 local ministries that we support are committed to serving the homeless and the hungry and the incarcerated and the impoverished and the addict and the refugee. But even when we do fall short in, in caring for all of life and upholding the dignity of all of life, that can't be used to justify abortion. The, the, the bigger problem with this argument is that it's a logical fallacy. It's an attack against pro-life advocates and not the pro-life position, the argument. Uh, another argument often given in support of abortion is encapsulated in the slogan, my body, my choice. And, and I would agree that individual autonomy over our bodies is an important right. But I would say, aren't there competing rights that are at stake? Uh, the conversation about abortion keeps coming back to the same question. What's inside the womb? Are the preborn human beings? And if they are, doesn't every civilized society restrict an individual's freedom to choose whenever that choice would harm an innocent person? The one-time choice of abortion robs someone else of a lifetime of choices and prevents them from ever exercising their rights. Abortion assures that about half a million females in this country each year do not have control over their bodies. The rights of women are important. I, I absolutely affirm that. But you have to ask yourself, does the right to control your own body supersede the right to life of another human being? And I would submit that the comparison between a baby's rights and a mother's rights are unequal because of what's at stake for the unborn. Another argument often given is that it wouldn't be right to bring children into the world um, who maybe are likely to have a poor quality of life, whether that's because they'd be born into poverty or maybe they've been diagnosed with some handicap while in utero. And I could spend a lot of time on this one. But I would say try asking a child living in poverty if they would prefer to be alive or dead. How about you? If you had to choose between being poor or being killed, which one are you going to pick? I'm guessing you'd prefer to live. And so I would say, why would it be okay to deprive someone else at the shot of life? And I think we all know that you can be, uh, you, you do not have to be rich to, to live a fulfilling life. And I would say, just like you can be disabled and be grateful to be alive. I want to show you a picture. This is Rajesh Durbel. And um, if you're familiar with the, the area, uh, this picture was taken exactly two years ago, about four miles down the street. This is uh, the Clemens West parking lot, and this is the finish line for the Smiley Triathlon. Uh, Rajesh 
is, um, what, as you can tell from that picture, uh, he, he was born with a, a congenital defect that left one arm partially developed, and he required an amputation of both of his legs below the knees before the age of one. And uh, Rajesh wouldn't remember meeting me, but I can tell you that the world is, is better off with him in it. He's led a rewarding life. He works a job. He's encouraged thousands of people with his speaking. And I'm not saying that there weren't hard times. I'm sure if we asked Rajesh or if we asked his parents, they would tell us that life wasn't always easy. But you know what I think they would tell us? That it was worth it. That it's worth it. And that his life matters. Uh, let me address one final argument. It goes something like this. If you're so opposed to abortion, then don't have one. Uh, maybe you've heard that one before. The thought behind this argument is that um, just because you're pro-life doesn't mean that you get to impose your preferences, your beliefs on someone else. And I'd say in response to that, that's fine if you want to say, well, hey, you know, if you don't like pizza with pineapple on it, then don't eat it. But you can't turn around and say, well, if you don't like human trafficking, don't do it. Or if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave. You, you wouldn't go along with that logic, would you? No, and the reason you wouldn't is because you know that it's harming to someone else. Whenever someone else is being harmed, whenever the innocent are being taken advantage of, God tells us that silence is not an option. And for that reason, I, I firmly believe that abortion is not an issue where Christians can agree to disagree. And, and, and I just, I really feel that it's the loving thing, especially for the unborn, for me to present that truth as plainly and persuasively as I can. What we see in scripture is that God says that it's a Christian duty to uphold the rights of the most vulnerable in society. In Isaiah 58, the prophet he, he chides the people because they have turned a blind eye to justice. He says, you know what would please me more than some of your religious activity, than your fasting? If you were to loose the bonds of wickedness and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. In Psalm 82, we find this command. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Just look again. Give justice. Maintain rights of the afflicted. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them. I think God's pretty clear about what he expects from his people. And, and, and we see that modeled in the life of Jesus. When Jesus was here, we saw that he cared about the least and the smallest. And if we considered ourselves to be followers of Jesus then it's our responsibility to follow in his footsteps. And it, if we know that it would be inhumane to turn our backs on 13 people stuck in a cave or 33 miners down in a pit or a little girl down in a well, can we turn our backs on the hundreds of thousands of children who die every year because of an abortion? And just because it happens in well-lit buildings, in a respectable part of town, during normal business hours, uh, by people who seem nice and might mean well, does that mean we can just ignore this? And I would say, 
God doesn't give us that option based on what I see in his word. I would say that, that this is something that is, is grotesque to God. And so we have an obligation to speak up, to maintain the rights of the afflicted, to rescue the weak and the needy, to champion the cause of those who are weak and voiceless. It's our duty to speak up for the vulnerable. And there are so many ways that we can get involved in, in defending the, the sacredness of all of life. God has gifted some of you with a heart to adopt. And if that isn't you, I would say, church family, let's come alongside those that do have that heart. And let's, you know, give them a break on the weekend. Let's, let's support them financially. Let's help them with things they might need. God has gifted others with the ability to help shape public policy. God has gifted others with the ability to counsel, maybe to come alongside that expectant mother or father who is scared and confused. God has blessed others with the ability to create art, to tell stories, to convey truth. As I understand it, one of the most potent tools in turning the tide of the abolition movement was a work of art uh, from the 18th century. It was, it was an image of an African-American man in its chains. And there was the, the, the words wrapped around it, am I not a man and a brother? God used that work of art to change people's hearts. And so there are so many different ways that we can work to save the lives of the vulnerable and the unborn. And if you consider yourself a Christian, I would just say, based on what we're seeing in God's word, I don't feel that this is an issue that we can just say, I'm going to be neutral on and I'm going to ride the fence. And I'm convinced that, that, that what God is wanting right now for our generation, that he's searching for people that would be like William Wilberforce and those men and women who are part of the Clapham sect and what they did to bring an end to the slave trade. God is looking for men and women right now in this generation that he can use uh, to turn the tide and to, and to save the lives of the innocent and the voiceless and to bring an end to abortion. And if you're here, and an abortion is part of your story. Maybe you, you encouraged someone to have an abortion, or maybe you paid for an abortion, or maybe you have an abortion. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And, and, and he's not looking down with a bony finger in your face. Jesus is standing there just like the story of the prodigal son with the father with his arms open wide and he wants to receive you. He wants to welcome you in. And there is, there is, there is no mistake we've made. There's no sin we've done that his blood can't cover. You know what we see in Psalm 103? You know, you know what he tells us about how far he removes our sins when we come to him? as far as the east is from the west. Here's what we know about the good news. Here's what we read in Romans 8.1. It says this, if you've come to Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, if he's your savior, we can say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not that there's, there's slightly less condemnation or you know, not as much as before. How much condemnation is there for those who are in Christ Jesus? Say it with me. 
no condemnation. And so none of us need to live a life that's haunted by our past. When we come to Jesus, we are given permission to move on. And if you're here and maybe you, you feel burdened uh, with some shame, maybe you feel weighed down with some guilt, if you struggle with any self-loathing, I would say let someone minister to you before you leave here today. We'll have men and women at the, at the tables in the back that would love to pray for you. Because what Jesus tells us is this, that if we, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise to us. And that's a promise all of us need to hear. Because when each one of us look in the past, there's not a one of us that could slip up our hand and say, well, I haven't wronged anyone. I haven't hurt anyone. All of us have done it. All of us have caused pain. And all of us are in need of that forgiveness and that cleansing that Jesus offers. And if you've never received that, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Will you pray with me? Oh, Jesus. I come before you and I just, I would pray that if I've said anything in a way or in a tone that's not reflective of your graciousness, that by your spirit that you would overrule. And Jesus, I thank you that there is nothing that we can do that would cause you to shun us. Lord, I, I pray that right now that you would be at work in our hearts. And where eyes have been blinded, I pray that by your spirit that you would cause the light of your truth to bring illumination. That you would give us eyes to see so that we would see what you see and we would want what you want. And Lord, where we have been apathetic, where we've been indifferent, and you've desired us to demonstrate care and concern, I pray that you would move us to action, that we would be people of justice, that you would empower us so that we could be vessels that you would use to bring about on earth what you would desire. And Lord, where forgiveness is needed for past mistakes, I pray that you would bring that. I just, I think of how King David after he had Uriah killed, could, could so confidently pray and ask you, knowing that you would restore unto him the joy of his salvation. And I pray that for everyone here. Lord, I pray that no one would have trouble accepting your forgiveness. Would you work in hearts so that all of us could say, let me tell you how much Jesus has done for me. And if you need to receive his forgiveness, if that's something you've never done, you can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I need you. Come and cleanse me. Thank you that you would do that. Thank you that you can do that because of the perfect life you lived and the death that you died in my place on the cross. And I want to make you my Savior and Lord. And I want to live for you all of my days. Help me to walk in freedom. In Jesus' name.
Amen.